The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. Welcome also to the final episode and conclusion of Jesus is Risen. In part one of this episode, we began to take a look at the central claim and the cornerstone to Christianity. We pointed out that even outside of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is an issue for which the answer for every man, woman, and child bears eternal consequences. Since the stakes are so high, each person owes it to themselves to carefully examine and weigh the evidence before making a conclusion. We began by identifying 12 presumptive facts regarding the investigation and exploration of Jesus' resurrection. In part one, we discussed the presumptive fact that Jesus was crucified and Jesus died. In part two, we address the fact that Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb, that Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion, that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death, and that a large number of the disciples, both separately 
and together said that they saw, touched, and ate together with Jesus after his death. In part two and three, we began to see how each of Jesus' disciples were psychologically transformed after his resurrection. In parts four through nine, we began to ask what theory best fits all of the 12 presumptive facts. So far, we have examined 16 of 17 theories and or allegations which generally represent the typical theories posed throughout history to explain Jesus' resurrection. The theories examined so far were 1. The disciples stole Jesus' body and preached Jesus as having raised from the dead. 2. The Jewish leaders took Jesus' body. 3. The Roman authorities took Jesus' body. 4. The women went to the wrong tomb. 5. Jesus resuscitated after having swooned and came forth. 6. The disciples had hallucinations. 7. The disciples made up the whole story. They were telling lies, and they knew they were telling lies. 8. The gardener removed Jesus' body, i.e. the lettuce theory. 9. Jesus had a twin brother. 10. Jesus' body decayed before Sunday and thus disappeared, i.e. the rapid decay theory. 11. Jesus was a Zen or yoga master. He learned how to simulate death, practiced it on Lazarus, and finally performed it on himself. 12. The Passover Plot 13. Joseph of Arimathea removed Jesus' body. 14. Legend 15. Spiritual Resurrection. And finally, 16. Jesus' body was devoured by dogs. So far, the theories presented have still failed to provide an effective explanation and have been found to be logically deficient. In this episode, we examine the final theory posited. As you may recall, each of the previous theories were put forth by skeptics atheists, secular humanists, or doubters as alternatives to essentially discount the theory or fact that Jesus rose from the dead. As was pointed out, in each case, though most, if not all of the people lodging these theories would likely admit to being aloof, if not altogether unfriendly to Christianity, Yet, with all of this being said, almost every theory put forth wound up consciously or unconsciously stipulating in whole or in part to the truthful premise of twelve presumptive facts. Among them were the following. 1. Jesus was a historical figure who lived. 2. Jesus was crucified. 3. Except for the swoon theory, all theories concede to Jesus' death. 4. Except for the wrong tomb theory, all theories concede that Jesus was buried in a known, accessible tomb. 5. Since none of the theories dispute it, we would assume that there is a historical concession that Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion. 6. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. This is probably the presumptive fact which finds the greatest dispute. 
This testifies to the reality that an empty tomb where Jesus' corpse once lay and now is empty must, by necessity, be explained. The only theories which make the easily disprovable suggestion that the tomb was still occupied are the wrong tomb theory, the hallucination theory, the lie theory, the twin brother theory, and the theory of a spiritual resurrection. 7. None of the theories dispute that the disciples, both separately and together, said that they saw, touched, and ate together with Jesus after his death. Instead, most of the theories claim that those who made these claims either lied, were mistaken, or deluded. 8. None of the theories really dispute that after the reappearance of Jesus, the disciples were psychologically transformed. Instead, most, if not all, the theories involved claim or insinuate that the disciples and others were psychologically transformed for the remainder of their lives by hearsay, legend, secondhand information, mass hypnosis, or lies despite persecution, trials, arrest, suffering, torture, and death. 9. The resurrected Jesus was central to the early church's message. 10. The phenomena of the resurrection was central in Jerusalem where there were still first-hand witnesses of the facts who were still alive as the movement began. 11. The church was born and grew as a direct result of the resurrected Jesus. And finally, 12. Saul of Tarsus was converted from a Pharisee who actively persecuted believers to the chief proponent and apologist of Christianity. Obviously, each of the 16 theories so far presented to ostensibly debunk the resurrection have the singular distinction of being unable to account for all of the 12 presumptive facts posited. In each case, each theory has one, if not more, glaring faults which fail to explain other historical aspects of the resurrection. In order for any of the theories presented to explain the resurrection to be viable, it must adequately and sufficiently address or explain all of the presumptive facts. In contrast to the idea that the resurrection has no historical basis to corroborate it, those theories presented by skeptics throughout the many years wind up conceding to or substantiating many of the very claims and presumptive facts presented at the outset by the disciples, the early church, and historical records. It is also worth note to ask a question, namely, if the theory that Jesus rose physically from the dead is so patently, obviously, and demonstrably false as the skeptics would have us believe, then why does it take more than a thousand years, hundreds and more skeptics, numerous books, pamphlets, videos, and other materials, as well as 16 different theories to attempt to disprove the resurrection? If the resurrection is so manifestly irrational and or mythological in nature, then shouldn't it be simple and obvious to easily disprove it? This being said, let us examine the last theory 
which in fact was the original claim made. Theory number 17. Jesus physically resurrected from the dead. Now in the case of this theory, I want to be fair in every other case when outlining and examining the theory in question I pointed out the shortcomings the faults and the issues which gave each respective theory its failings this being the case we want to look with a discerning eye to do the same with this theory and identify the good the bad and the ugly first the good the strength of the original claim that Jesus rose physically from the dead is that this theory addresses, explains, and legitimizes each and every one of the twelve presumptive facts presented. The claim or fact that Jesus physically rose from the dead flows from and agrees with the fact that Jesus lived as a historical personage. Jesus' resurrection from the dead presumes the fact that he first died and that the cause of death was crucifixion. Jesus' resurrection presumes that Jesus' body was placed in a known accessible tomb. If this were not the case, then the Jewish and or Roman authorities would have the motivation to use their considerable resources to locate both the tomb as well as Jesus' body. Jesus' resurrection also presumes Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' resurrection explains how and why the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death. Jesus' physical resurrection explains why a large number of the disciples, both separately and together, said that they saw touched, and ate together with Jesus after his death. Jesus' physical resurrection from death explains how and why Jesus' disciples were psychologically transformed. Jesus' resurrection from death provides the foundation central to the early church's message. The reality of Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead explains how and why the Christian church grew despite the resurrection being central in Jerusalem where there were still first-hand witnesses of the facts who were still alive as the movement began. Finally, Jesus' resurrection explains how and why Saul of Tarsus was converted from a Pharisee who actively persecuted believers to being the chief proponent and apologist of Christianity. Unlike the other 16 theories, this theory does not present information which agrees with some, but denies or fails to explain others. In the case of the other 16 theories, the end result is that we wind up having pieces to a puzzle that look very interesting and pretty when examined by themselves. But no matter how we try to assemble these pieces, we find that the pieces do not fit together to give us a cumulative picture which makes any uniform sense. However, in looking at the theory that Jesus rose physically from the dead, some may not like the picture they see when assembled, but it does fit together and make a discernible message. Next, as promised, the bad. 
In this case, if there is a bad fault pertaining to this theory, then it lies within the philosophical worldview of those examining the theory. There are basically two philosophical worldview assumptions with which to approach the resurrection of Jesus. First, we have those who consciously or unconsciously dismiss, reject, or refuse Jesus' resurrection or anyone else's because they dismiss the possibility of miracles and implicitly assume a naturalistic worldview in which all that exists is the natural world, which is governed solely by immutable natural laws. In other words, finite man begins with a priori bias that only those things which happen on a regular basis or which can be repeated at will in a laboratory are things which are real or exist. Anything which has not been observed firsthand or which cannot be repeated at will in a laboratory are rejected until they can be observed and repeated. Since miracles, such as a person, in this case Jesus, physically rising from the dead, cannot be observed firsthand, nor repeated at will in a laboratory, it violates the naturalistic worldview which they have assumed, and therefore it is impossible and does not exist. Without getting too deep into the weeds of human philosophy, this group and its ideology would also dovetail with the assumption of empiricism. Empiricism says that all knowledge must be restricted to those objects which can be perceived by our senses. Since we cannot know non-material things, we must conclude that these things, i.e. such as God, soul, mind, self, do not exist. Meaning is restricted to what we know, which is reduced to material objects, which can be perceived by the five senses. Those who subscribe to the philosophy of natural law empiricism and materialism shun faith and its precepts because in their estimation faith is one of those non-material concepts which cannot be measured or repeated in a laboratory at will. Those who would dismiss faith on this basis fail or refuse to acknowledge that they exercise faith in their assumptions of their worldview just as much if not more than those who would exercise faith to assume that God exists. For example, most evolutionists would say in general that the earth was formed some several million years ago by random natural processes. Yet, if we follow the letter of the law, the fact is that no evolutionist living today was alive to perceive this event firsthand with any of their five senses. It is an event which does not happen on a regular basis. And the last time I checked, no evolutionist has been able to recreate at will the birth of the earth and all of its complexity in a laboratory at will. Instead, evolutionists make extrapolations based on processes today and assume that every process and factor today was identical in every aspect going back to the beginning of time. But the simple truth is this or any other assumption, which by any other name, is still an assumption. 
when and wherever assumptions, in part or in whole, however noble, form the basis of what we believe, be it evolution or creation, faith is born. With this brief summary, the resurrection of Jesus is that it was a historical event which occurred in the past. While this is admittedly the fact, the fact does not disqualify it as being viable just on this basis alone. If we did, we would likewise have to disqualify any and all events which occurred in the past or are a matter of history. The truth is that by definition, nothing in the stream of past history can be observed firsthand unless it was recent enough for the one observing it to be an immediate, percipient witness of that event. Second, no historical event can be brought into any laboratory to be repeated at will. This would be true whether we are talking about the death of Abraham Lincoln, Henry VIII, or Jesus of Nazareth. Consequently, as those who have assumed the philosophical tenets of materialism, empiricism, and of a naturalistic worldview are confronted with the claim that Jesus physically rose from the dead, they are going to use all of these philosophical assumptions as a priori bias with which to reject the resurrection. In effect, it is a circular argument which says that Jesus could not have risen from the dead, because the natural laws which they assume to be true say that it is impossible for the dead to come back to life. Therefore, it could not happen. As a result, this group will by necessity be forced to adopt one or more of the remaining 16 theories to explain the resurrection. To do otherwise would force those who hold these philosophical views to admit that they are wrong or that they are only finite humans who do not have enough information to really know what is possible, particularly if, as there is, a God who exists and who is able to transcend the limitations placed by man on the universe. Finally, we have the ugly. There are many who apply the above philosophical assumptions to bear on the rejection of the resurrection, although they do not know the technical arguments. All they know is that it seems implausible that a dead person would come back to life since they don't see this happening every week. Others know the technical terms involved and believe that they are right because of their ability to articulate the arguments better than the average person who simply reads the Bible and believes the testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. But there is another category which could be called the ugly, who would reject the resurrection in concert with the above or solely on its own merits. This group resists or rejects Jesus' resurrection because they instinctively or expressly understand that if they accept the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, then Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The moment that this realization becomes a possibility, much less a reality, then that person becomes accountable to God to repent, accept, believe, and follow Jesus as Lord of their life, or reject, rebel, and deny what they know to be true, and instead do what is right in their own eyes. I would contend that there are many people who will go to whatever lengths necessary to avoid entertaining any serious possibility that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? 
Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then it follows that this is proof also of his other claims. Namely, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Bible is God's word. God exists. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, and my choices now carry eternal consequences. Finally, assumptions, beliefs, faith, and worldviews of either kind are a lot like pouring cement. Initially, like cement, worldviews and philosophies start out being flexible and fluid as we develop and work with them. However, as time goes on, we become increasingly invested in them psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Eventually, they become solid, inflexible, and hardened positions which very little, if anything, can or will free us from. To put it succinctly, both atheists and theists alike develop various relationships, i.e. spouses, friends, business relationships, acquaintances, peers, etc., all of which attach themselves to the positions we hold. Thus, when we contemplate the possibility of disinvesting ourselves with uh, the philosophical positions we hold, we must likewise contemplate the possibility, if not the reality, of estranging ourselves to all of the relationships we hold dear. As a result, the relationships and environment we create become the anchor and glue which tend to entrench each of us within the philosophical worldviews we have chosen. With all of this being said, from an earthly standpoint, it is easier to appreciate the difficulties and limitations of human nature associated with accepting the resurrection of Jesus. It is no simple task from a fleshly standpoint to abandon the firmly entrenched beliefs of a lifetime, much less the associations of this world. In order to do so ultimately requires God's grace. It is not impossible to make the journey. As the saying goes, each journey begins with the first step. This being said, I would submit that the first step and the path forward would require the following things as a prerequisite to any success. 1. God gives us the recognition that the process begins, continues, and concludes as a special act of God's sovereign grace and love towards those whom he chooses. 2. God provides us with the willingness to have a sincerely open heart and mind. 3. No investigation of truth can earnestly be made going forward with any priori bias. 4. We have to begin with the possibility, or at least an open mind to the view that God or a God exists. 5. We have to be willing to examine the evidence, the arguments, and consider every possibility even if it is one that would force us to reevaluate our worldview and or our philosophy. I would respectfully submit that if we honestly, sincerely, earnestly follow these steps and apply them to the question of the resurrection, then we can and will come to the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth lived, was crucified, died, and rose again physically the third day. The skeptic will likely say that coming to a conclusion and proving something are two different things. You need to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. 
Can you prove the resurrection happened scientifically? In this vein, when we talk about scientific proof, oftentimes skeptics will argue that anyone can conclude anything, even when the conclusion is an error. Our modern Western philosophical beliefs have created the assumption that if something can't be proven scientifically, then it must not be true. However, this is a categorical fallacy. Our modern generation has been so influenced by modern scientific and technological discoveries that we have collectively come to believe that the scientific method is the ultimate crucible of inquiry. As we saw earlier in our discussion of miracles, the scientific method involves the observation of repeatable events and the formulation of a hypothesis based on those observations. By reminder, history is not something that is repeatable. No one can study history in the laboratory. Nevertheless, no matter how many times the discussion arises, the skeptic, the atheist, and the secular humanist will inevitably default to their challenge to quote-unquote prove it. In the end, there are two insurmountable, irreconcilable problems to this challenge. One, as long as the skeptic, atheist, and or secular humanist insist on remaining entrenched within the priori bias of materialism, empiricism, and natural law, they have strategically chosen and created an argument based upon a categorical fallacy within which it will be impossible by definition to prove anything which is a past historical event. Thus, since the resurrection is a past historical event and cannot be studied firsthand or recreated in the laboratory, it will never be capable of being quote-unquote proven to their satisfaction given the restrictions imposed. Second, if skeptics, atheists, and or secular humanists were more intellectually honest, they would see a basic and foundational hypocrisy inherent to their own system. In this case, the scientific method demands that we are supposed to thoroughly test any given theory in order to be certain that our theory in question is valid. Unless the theory is tested and verified, all we have is a theory. Consequently, any scientist who failed to adequately test their theory in every respect would fail to maintain their credibility as a scientist. In the case of Jesus' resurrection, the question of Jesus' identity as the Messiah and the existence of God, one of, if not the final and ultimate test as to the reality of these truths, is the test of faith. Unless and until the skeptic, the atheist, and or the secular humanists are willing to sincerely and honestly apply the test of faith to these theories, they have failed to exercise the full merits of the scientific method by which they swear. This is ultimately a problem for the skeptic because on the one hand they would deny the resurrection of Jesus on the basis it cannot be proven using the scientific method. Yet simultaneously, the same skeptic refuses to sincerely apply every test available as would a true open-minded scientist to prove or disprove Jesus' resurrection. 
Conversely, for those who by God's grace have sincerely, earnestly, and honestly applied the final test of faith to this question, they have proven the theory and the facts stands as it has for 2,000 plus years that Jesus has risen. The life-changing and eternal import of this question is this. If Jesus was crucified, died, and had the power to rise from the dead to life again, as he and God's word the Bible predicted, then we may also take credible faith and hope in the reality that God has the power to raise those who have exercised faith and trust in him from death to eternal life. We may also take hope and have faith that those who are alive and believe that Jesus is the life and the resurrection shall never die. This truth is something which none of the other 16 theories offer. This is a reality which no other religion or philosophical system can support. In conclusion, once we know the truth of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, our lives, like the disciples, will never be the same. We will be changed forever, and nothing that persecution, prosecution, trials, arrests, troubles, torture, or even death can separate us from the power of his love. Father, I pray that the power which was present to raise your son to life from the dead would be present and go forth now to all who would listen. I pray that by your grace that those who would listen would have their hearts softened and that they would hear your voice. I pray that hearing they would respond in faith to accept and believe that Jesus lived, was crucified, died, and rose again. Likewise, I pray that these would be willing to confess their sins and lay each and every sin upon Jesus who stands ready to accept and forgive them all. I pray that these would experience the finished work and imputed righteousness of Jesus given freely to our account, and that they would rise with Jesus to the newness of life eternal given under his name alone. We thank you, Lord, for this unwavering promise and guarantee. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust